it's been great to be with you guys. Thank you so much for being so welcoming and hospitable and kind. Um, I'm from New England. Not everyone there okay. is kind. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of great things about New England, but not everyone is super friendly. So thank you guys for your hospitality. Sorry, that makes it sound like New Englanders are mean. That's not what I mean at all. Okay, I'm going to stop talking. Um, this evening, we are going to look at um, uh, our third question from Jesus. Um, so to set up this question, I have a question for you guys. Um, have you ever experienced a time in your life where your perception of something was not quite what it ended up being in reality? So, for example, this would happen to me all the time. Um, I would sign up for a class because I thought it was going to be an easy A. And then you show up and you're like, what is all this reading? Why is this taking up so much of my life? Um, I, yeah, that would happen to me all the time. Astronomy, I don't know. I did not want to take chemistry or biology or an actual, like, hard science. Um, so I took astronomy and I thought it was going to be easy and it was actually really hard. In astronomy? Yeah, it was hard. I don't know. Okay, well, if you didn't go, that's your fault. <laughs> um, but what about when your perception of a person was not what they ended up being in reality? Have you ever had that happen? And you're like, ooh, thought you were different. Yeah, cat don't say catfish. Oh, gosh. Too many, like, crime shows about that. I'm so sorry, Alexis. Okay, well, let's, let's pivot away from, like, a traumatic experience. Um, and I want to tell you about one of my favorite movie series of all time. So I love Harry Potter. Love Harry Potter. Yes. Um, so Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was actually one of the first movies I ever watched in English. Uh, so it has a really special place in my heart. Um, have you guys seen that movie? Yeah. So that scene at the end with Professor Quirrell where he has like Voldemort in the back of his head, that was terrifying. Okay, I'm sorry. If, you, if I'm about to spoil Harry Potter. If you haven't seen it at this point, I'm so sorry. It's a really old movie series. Um, but anyway, I grew up on Harry Potter, and this series has like a lot of serious plot twists um, in what I think is one of the greatest reveals of like all time. We learned that Severus Snape, this like unpleasant, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, this unpleasant and often feared professor who seems to be a death eater who kills Albus Dumbledore. Um, <laughs> He's not a villain! Sorry guys, spoiler alert. Um, if you haven't seen Harry Potter, it's basically a story of good versus evil. And um, this entire series, we think this one character is part of the evil side. And then, like, suddenly we learn that his character is actually really complex. And he's actually made it his lifelong duty to protect Harry out of his love, out of love for his mother. And his, oh yeah, I forgot about this picture. This picture just makes me laugh. What a goofy guy. Um, and actually his apparent loyalty to the side of evil was only to protect Harry. And so all of a sudden when you're watching this movie or reading the book, your perception of Snape's identity and his purpose is turned completely upside down. 
so much so that at the end of the series, Harry, who like through the entire series has held hostility towards this guy, he names his son after him. And if you haven't seen this movie or the series, I really truly am sorry, but... Oh, I'm so sorry! Oh no! Okay, well, I will buy you a coffee later. I don't know how to reconcile with you. Please take my... I'm so sorry. Um, anyway, okay, so let's stop talking about Harry Potter. But the point is, there's no way you can watch it and, and think of him the same way. Um, so it's one thing when it's a plot twist in a fictional story. It's another thing when it's real life. Um, and when it comes to God, I don't know about you, but I would like to live uh, based off of reality, not my perception of God. Um, and with someone as consequential as God himself, wouldn't you like to know who he is in reality? And so this weekend so far, we have heard Jesus ask what we want. We've heard Jesus ask if we want to get well. Um, and I hope, I hope Jesus is becoming more and more beautiful to you. Um, but whether you're new to Jesus or you've known him for a long time, you will at some point have to answer this question that we're looking at tonight. And so this question tonight requires us to look at who Jesus is in reality and decide what we will do with that. And I would venture to say that this question tonight is probably the most important question you'll ever answer in your life. And everyone has an answer to this question. And that question is simple. Who is Jesus? And does your perception of him match who he is in reality? And that's not a question, again, to test you like, ooh, do you really know Jesus? Um, that's not it at all. But it's a question that Jesus asks because Jesus really does want us to know who he is. And he knows that how you answer this question is going to have unimaginable consequences in your life. Um, there's a theologian named A.W. Tozer, great guy, um, and he wrote these words. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of a soul to move toward our mental image of God. So in other words, you become like your vision of God. Even if you're a secular person, even if you don't believe in God, you will just become like whatever you replace God with in your mind. And this is where neuroscience and scripture are actually in complete agreement about this, that what we think about God forms who we become. And so tonight, we need Jesus to cut through all our projections, all our perceptions, and give us revelation. And so um, we're going to be reading out of the book of Mark tonight. Sorry, we're switching it up. No more John. <laughs> Moved on. Um, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 35. Mark chapter 8, 27 to 35. It says, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? And they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to, tell them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. 
He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. So I love um, the Gospel of Mark because he's really blunt and direct. Um, And most scholars see this passage in Mark as kind of like that central hinge that holds the entire book together. So um, you can think of the book of Mark like a play with two acts, and this is a passage that holds it together. And so up to this point in the gospel, the first eight chapters of Mark, uh, he records all the amazing teachings and miracles of Jesus. There's all this talk about who he is, and all of this culminates in this passage, when Jesus takes all the questions that everyone has been asking him about him, and he turns it back on his disciples. And so you can think of this passage as kind of like being that moment when who Jesus is in reality is revealed. And Jesus and his disciples are going on a little field trip (laughs) nearby Caesarea Philippi. Um, You can consider this area like the cutting edge of the pagan world, um, which just basically means that there was this like mismatch of different religions and spirituality. Um, And I tell you that just to say, like, this is like an odd location for the proclamation of Jesus as Messiah. It's like, it's not like Jesus takes them to church or someplace like where they're worshiping God. It's as if Jesus takes you to the middle of campus where you're surrounded by tons of people who represents all sorts of different beliefs. And it's on this trip and this context with his disciples that Jesus asks this question, who do you say I am? And as we engage with this question tonight, we will see the reality of Jesus's identity and the reality of Jesus's purpose. So the reality of Jesus's identity. Jesus first asks them, hey guys, what are people saying about me? What's the media? What are the influencers? What are the bloggers? Who do they say I am? And it's a question that his disciples have probably pondered for a while anyway. Jesus had gained a good amount of popularity. Um, Just like today, there were all sorts of ideas and ideologies about who Jesus is. And so they say, well, you know, some say are saying you're John the Baptist. Some are saying you're Elijah, you're a prophet. Um, Basically, what that means is like, you know, Jesus, like they think you're one of the greatest figures in human history. You're up there with John the Baptist. You're maybe even supernatural in some way. You're not, you are great if not uh, even greater than some of the greats. And I wonder if you were to like pull your campus, who is Jesus? What would people say? I know that on my campus, they would say something like, you know, he's like a pretty good teacher we can learn from, or he's a social justice warrior. He's just a wise sage. And from a historical perspective, Jesus is one of the greatest human figures that ever lived in history. Tons of people quote him and use his teachings, even if they don't consider themselves a Christian. So yeah, Jesus, who do people say you are? You're a pretty big deal. You've added goodness to this world. You're pretty awesome. 
And then Jesus turns to his disciples and asks, who do you say I am? And the structure of this question um, emphasizes the word you. So this question can be translated more literally. And you, who do you say that I am? And these disciples, they've been with him at this point for a few years. They've heard his teaching. They've seen miracles, experienced his love and character. And so Jesus doesn't ask this question day one, but there comes a time where he does ask this question. And I'd like to imagine, like, the disciples just kind of stared at each other for a little while, like, I don't know. <laughs> and then bold Peter declares, you're the Messiah. Or translated another way, um, you're the Christ. Christ uh, is not Jesus' last name. It's actually an ancient title uh, that means anointed one. And in the Old Testament, there was a promise for an anointed one who would be a deliverer for his people, that there would one day be a king to end all kings. And so basically he's saying, Jesus, that's who you are. You're not just a great teacher or miracle worker. You're not just a prophet. You're the Messiah. You are the promised king we have been waiting for. The one that my parents, that my grandparents, my great-great-grandparents, we've been waiting for. And so Peter identifies Jesus as the king. But what does this identity, Jesus' identity as king mean? Um, these words of Jesus, your king, like I feel like they're sung so often, but what does that actually mean? Well, at the heart of kingship is the concept of authority. And when you give a king authority, giving a king authority involves you surrendering your autonomy, your freedom, and your control to someone else. And so these disciples would have had a sense of what kingship looks like. Um, I, I don't know about you, but it's pretty hard for me to comprehend because we don't live with the king living over us. Think about the kinds of things that a king had a right to do. Um, in the Old Testament, we, we read that a king had the right to his subjects' crops. He had a right to their money, to their careers. He could en enlist his people to fight his wars. A king had actual authority to rule, not just make suggestions. So Jesus being king means that Jesus is no longer just like this guy that like gives you advice. Um, he's no longer just one of many things in your life. You either reject him as king or crown him king of your life, which means we submit our thoughts, our actions, our, and our ways to King Jesus. As one pastor put it, the gospel is not good advice, it's a summons to follow a king. Advice is like counsel on how you should better your life, right? Like, you should try yoga. You should stretch 10 minutes a day, which, by the way, we all should do. You should go vegetarian. You should consider this major. You should date this person. You shouldn't date that person. That's advice versus news. News is that the king has come to save us and to establish his rule and reign over our lives. And so basically, Jesus invites us to live in his kingdom where he is king. And I would say, in all my years of working um, with Chi Alpha, this is the number one thing I rub up against on my campus. It's the number one thing I rub up against in my own discipleship to Jesus. Because unfortunately, we often want a king that meets our wants, but doesn't affect our individualism. 
And most people prefer Jesus as a consultant rather than a king. We live in this like secular age where we have gone from a culture of authority to a culture of authenticity. And what I mean by that basically is the authority to decide what's right and wrong has gone from internal, sorry, external to internal. You are now the authority over your life. And our culture defines freedom as the ability to do whatever we want as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. And we as a culture don't like the idea of kingship or queenship at all. We prefer democracy where every man is king and every woman is queen. So this idea of Jesus as king, it is against the flow of our culture. And yet at the center of Jesus's identity is this idea of kingship, of him having authority over our lives. And again, to come under authority is to surrender our autonomy and control to someone else. The king gets to decide, not me. And so you see, there's this deep conflict between the reality of Jesus's identity as king and the gospel of the West. But if that's how we see Jesus, as, as a king who doesn't really affect our individualism, we're not living in reality. If you're like, okay, I, don't, I still don't know what you're talking about. Um, this is a little theoretical for me. Sorry, I tend to do that. <laughs> Perhaps an illustration of this would be a story I recently heard um, about the Knights Templar. So legend says, I don't know if this is 100% true. I need to caveat that. The legend says that during the Crusades in the 11th century, the Knights Templar, they would be baptized in their full armor. But as they were baptized, they would hold their sword up out of the water, as if to say, God, you can have all of my life except for this, except for the violence and the injustice that I do with this. And again, I don't know if this story is 100% true, but I do think it's a convicting illustration because that image seems ridiculous, right? But I think it's just more honest than we would be. Like, can you imagine, like, do you guys, I don't know if you guys have seen baptisms, but imagine if we had baptisms like that. Like, you go under the water, but you hold up whatever you don't want to give over to God. So you go under the water while holding up your iPhone or a picture of your girlfriend or alcohol or something that represents your social life, you hold up your career. Jesus, you can have all of me. You can be king over most areas of my life, just not this. And I've been surprised at how, how hard it is to give things to, over to Jesus. I get like defensive. For example, giving Jesus authority over the kinds of movies and shows that I watch or giving Jesus authority over my finances, giving Jesus authority over my tongue, how I speak about people even when they hurt me, giving Jesus authority over my schedule, that's hard. So in Jesus' question, we are first confronted with the reality of Jesus' identity as king. And Jesus is either king over your whole life or he's actually not king at all. He's just a consultant to you. And alongside these disciples, in this question, we are invited to move from perception into reality, from whatever your perception is to recognize him as the king. 
And when Jesus asks this question, who do you say I am? We cannot with integrity say you are the Messiah if we are not willing to give Jesus authority over every area of our lives. Or as my mentor likes to say, you cannot say the sentence, no Lord. Yet even with Peter's correct recognition of Jesus's identity as king, we see in the following interaction that the disciples' perception of Jesus's purpose as king was not what it was in reality. Mark records that after this grand recognition of him as king, Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying. It might be hard for us to empathize, but these disciples, generations of their people have been waiting for a savior. They were a people who were powerless. They were promised a Messiah who would lead them into freedom from the, the shame and oppression of living under Roman rule. Roman, Rome was seen as this monstrous pagan rule over the people of God. And for generations, they had been waiting for the one God to overthrow this regime and set up his own kingdom. And so how else would that happen if not through strength and some sort of political revolution? They were hoping for a king who honestly was going to be a military and political leader, especially against Roman rule. And think about this. Anyone with Jesus's powers, he had powers to heal the sick, he could cast out demons, he could feed thousands with a few scraps of food. Anyone with this kind of power and authority has no need to suffer. For Peter and his disciples, the idea of a suffering king was, was incomprehensible. They literally like, did not have a framework for it. The, the phrase crucified Messiah, that would have been like an oxymoron. Like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Does anyone have, play sports in high school? Yeah? Well, it would be as if your coach, before the championship game of whatever sport you play, your coach gathers your team, and they're like, okay, team, tonight, let's go out there and really lose. Like, every time you get the ball, just turn it over. Don't put a single point on the board. We are going down tonight. Like, what would you say to that? Like, why, would, why in the world would we do that? But Jesus says this king must suffer and die. And this was like unex unexpected, unacceptable. Peter even pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him. And the word for rebuke that Mark uses there is the same word that's used when Jesus rebukes Satan. Like that's how like offended Peter was. This isn't a hey, Jesus, like, you're really, like, bringing the mood down. Let's not talk about that. Like, he's like, no, like, wait, Jesus, what are you talking about? You're a king. You're going to a throne. And Jesus is, in response, says kind of harshly, you're right, I am the king, but I'm a king going to the cross. And if you want to follow me, if you want to be in my kingdom, you have to come to the cross, too. And the cross, it's a very common symbol in Christianity, right? But the disciples, they would, have, they would have been shook. To them, crucifixion was something they were quite familiar with. Crucifixion was the most shameful way to die. It was so shameful that it was actually illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. 
And so in this moment, Jesus totally flipped their perceptions upside down of what it looks like to have victory. I am here to bring my kingdom, but I'm going to do that through suffering and rejection. And this is the remarkable mystery of the cross of Christ. Jesus looks like a tragic failure, but he's the victorious one. And on the cross, Jesus fully enacted what he thought, taught throughout his ministry, that the evil powers of our day are defeated through suffering love. And this is the way of the kingdom under Jesus' kingship. And you know, Jesus being king is enough to warrant our obedience, but he's the kind of king that willingly made himself low, walked through unimaginable trauma and agony, took on suffering to bring restoration for us in this world. That's a good king. What does this reality of Jesus' purpose as king mean? We're not first century Jews, um, so we don't really have the same kind of political military expectations about Jesus. But I would bet that most of us probably have a perception of what kind of life following Jesus will bring us. Specifically, we don't like to perceive that following Jesus will bring suffering or cost us something. If you're an American, I am American, most of us have been told all of our lives that life is about happiness, life is about greatness, success, or doing just what feels right to us. And it's very easy to co-opt this into our perception of Jesus. Just like the disciples, we can have incorrect perceptions of what Jesus is all about. But Jesus makes it clear that following him is like dying. To be Jesus' disciple means to actually follow him all the way to the cross. The way of Jesus is this, death, burial, and resurrection. And this is the pattern not just for Jesus, but for every single disciple. If you really want to live, first you have to die. For some people, this means literal death. Many of the disciples, James, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Peter, John, Thomas. If you were at um, the missions meeting with the bakers today, you might have heard some of the stories they were sharing about the cost of following Jesus. That it, it still to this day, in the, for the persecuted church, following Jesus might cost you your very life. But for most of us, it won't be a literal death. But for all people, it does mean we surrender our whole lives, no matter the cost. It means we no longer live for ourselves. To take up the cross means whatever, wherever, whenever. It means self-denial. And taking up our cross is not a one-time event, it's a way of life. He wasn't just asking them to tweak a few things in their lifestyle. He was asking them to, to abandon their agenda and to choose the way of suffering pain. There's a pastor down in Australia who I really respect. And he wrote um, in his book called Disappearing Church this quote. We do not recognize the way in which the implicit prosperity gospel affects us until our unspoken expectations are not met. 
We understand that God would ask people in the two-thirds world to give up things to sacrifice, but our heresy hidden under the surface is our belief that God would not ask Western people to deny themselves. Or in other words, I want to be really generous and I want to be rich. I want humility, but I don't want to receive correction or experience humiliation. I want to live like Jesus, but I also want to be really liked by my peers. I want character, but I don't want to suffer. I want patience, but I don't want to wait. I want to be kind, but I don't want people in my life who agitate me. I want community, but I don't want to commit to something when it's inconvenient. I want to see the nations reached, but I don't want it to cost me my plans or my income. I want to be transformed into the image of Christ, but I don't want to do the hard work of discipline. I want to hear God's voice, but I don't want to wake up early to focus on prayer. Or in other words, you could go on and on. I could think of many examples uh, where I put myself in those shoes. In other words, I don't want the life of, I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want to take up the cross of Jesus. I want the life of Jesus, but I don't want to take up his cross. Taking up your cross might mean laying down your night, your idea of a good time, because he's calling you to pour into your core group instead of going out on a Friday night. It might mean letting go of your dream career because he's calling you into missions. It might mean letting go of your vision of having a spouse. I don't know, it might look different for everyone in this room, but it's something we do daily and it's something that Jesus calls all of us to. And this is the essence of living in Jesus's kingdom. He's honest, he's not being manipulative, but you have to choose to be part of this kingdom. And so in Jesus's question, we are confronted with his identity as king, but also his purpose as king. And maybe you're like, Gosh, Jenny, I don't really like this reality. <laughs> Seems kind of hard. Well, let's take a look at Jesus' words at the end of our passage. He says, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. So there's a little parable that Jesus shares somewhere else in the Bible, I don't know where, <laughs> where he basically says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. And so it's a really simple parable. A man discovers treasure in a field. It's more valuable than anything he could ever imagine. And to get it, he sells everything he has. He sells his whole life. 
And when you hear that story, do you feel sorry for him? Do you feel sorry? After all, that treasure cost him his whole life. But it pales in comparison to what he gained. In his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. You see, when Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it, that's a statement of reality. Like, that's a promise from Jesus. Because here's the thing. Life with God in his kingdom is what makes death to self not only a possibility, but a genuine joyful reality. Yes, we have to recognize what it might cost to follow him, to follow him to the cross. But think about what we gain. We gain life, life abundant. And when we follow him, we are in his hands. We are part of his kingdom that is going to endure forever. He will never leave us or forsake us. We are free from living enslaved to our wants. We experience that shalom we talked about this morning. We're brought into a new family. We have purpose in our lives. And as we follow Jesus day by day, taking up our cross, I promise you, your understanding of King Jesus' goodness and his trustworthiness will only grow. So, let's begin to bring this to a close. I'll invite the worship team back up. So our question tonight is really simple. Who do you say Jesus is? Does your perception of Jesus match who he is in reality? And how you answer this question is going to change your life forever like for eternity. Because the reality is, you don't have to say yes. You can reject him as your king. And you probably will have a wonderful and enjoyable life. But one day, your kingdom, the kingdom that you choose to live in, that kingdom is going to end. The kingdom of God is inevitable. And honestly, his kingdom is, is just better than yours. So we are going to have a time of prayer and reflection. Um, and actually, as we do, I'm going to ask us if we um, could actually all stand before I give us any guidance. Um, I'm going to ask you guys to stand and just find a space in the room. I don't know. I get distracted <laughs> when someone's like next to me. Um, and so, yeah, as we enter into a time of um, prayer and talking with the Lord, um, just spread out. Find a space where you can be. Maybe find a physical posture um, that reflects the posture of your heart. You know, we believe that the Holy Spirit speaks to us still today. And if you wonder, like, what, is, what does the Holy Spirit sound like? Sometimes it's just a thought, a thought that you have in your head. And so I want to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us. And I want to speak to three different groups of people as we reflect on this question tonight. The first group is 
you know, maybe you're here and you're kind of new to Jesus. Like, you're like, honestly, I'm still kind of figuring this whole thing out. Um, I just want to say that's okay. Jesus doesn't mind you hanging around him for a while. And in fact, if that's you, I hope Kaiapha can be a place where you experience and discover who Jesus is. But at some point on your journey, you are going to need to answer this question. And so if that's you tonight, I just invite you to ask God to speak to you right where you are. Ask him to help you hear his voice and to see him more clearly. The second group, you know, maybe you've been hanging around Jesus for a while. Maybe you've known him your whole life. But tonight, maybe you need to wrestle with the, the reality of Jesus being king, truly being king over your life. The reality that if he is on the throne of your life, everything is submitted to him. Your habits, your thoughts, your actions, your future. And so if that's you, I invite you to ask the Holy Spirit to show you what it would look like to live under Jesus's authority. You know, going back to the illustration of that baptism, is there something that you would hold above the water during your baptism? Ask God to reveal to you areas where you are refusing to give him authority and choose to release that to him. And finally, uh, perhaps tonight you are face to face with the reality of Jesus's purpose as king that the way to life actually involves a cross and that to be Jesus's disciple means to take up our own cross daily and that might mean suffering it may mean sacrifice and perhaps God uh, has is going to bring something to your attention or maybe it's just conviction And so if that's you, I invite you to ask the Lord to give you the courage to follow him in joyful obedience. Is there something that Jesus is inviting you into that you know might cost you something, whether that's big or small? So I'm just going to pray for us um, as we reflect on those few questions. I'm sure the worship team will lead us in a few songs, but... Um, yeah, take these few moments um, just to speak to the Lord and to hear his voice. And I would encourage you, um, if there's something that the Lord is speaking to you, find someone and pray with them. Don't let this moment pass by. So let's pray. Jesus, I pray, Lord, that um, you would be king over our lives. Lord, we confess that we still want to be on the throne at times, that there are things that we would hold above the water, that, Lord, that it, it's hard to, to wrap our minds around the fact that following you might actually cost us something tangible. And so, Lord, uh, for each person in this room, I pray that the reality of who you are and all of your goodness and all of your glory and all of your power would become more clear tonight. I pray, Holy Spirit, 
that you would speak something specific to each one of us, that we would walk out of here living in reality of who you are. Amen.